guys uh, give the Lord a hand and these guys up here. We all know they're just servants, but they serve well, and the Lord is good in them, and we appreciate them and everything they do and the time and the energy and the effort they put into that. So if you get a chance to thank them, do so, and if you get a chance to thank the guys in the back who work so hard to keep all that stuff rolling, there's a lot of things that happen to make something work, and uh, there's a lot of people that put a lot of time in here, and we appreciate and value them, and people that come and clean the church and serve and Brian and Justin, what they do out front, all of it matters. Amen. Uh, before we get started, first of all, welcome if you're new here. I uh, hope you are patient with us. Um, make yourself at home. If you need anything, let somebody know. We're here for you and we're glad you're here and, and, and we honor you. Um, we have some changes coming up, guys, so please, as Abe is making announcements in the morning, I know there's a lot that's always going on, and we want to love and fellowship one another. I'm not saying we should stop doing that at all, but I'm saying that we need to pay attention to some things because stuff's shifting. So if we can put a couple of announcements back up real quick just to make sure everybody caught them. Um, we're going to start with the home group. Uh, we are shifting home groups tomorrow to people's houses, so we will no longer have it here. If you show up here, we won't be here. Um, so these are the two addresses that we're going to have. Okay, jot those down. If you are coming to home group consistently and plan on coming to home group consistently, can you throw that slide up real quick and we'll go back to this one. If you, if you plan on coming fairly consistently, then please text home group to 94000 and you will get a text throughout the week that tells you which address you're going to. Can you put the other one back up, Jared? If you're, if you're not planning on coming consistently, then we ask you to just pick one and show up. And the next time you come, go to the other one. And we'll leave it on an honor system. What we're trying to do is create um, a lack of a click-based culture. We're not having the same people around each other constantly that we diversify and get to know one another. So it's, it's random on the call out. So you're going to you know, get a random address. And you don't know who you're going to see when you get there. So it's kind of like, you know, people Christmas, you know. And, uh, and so, but if you, if you don't want to come consistently or can't come consistently, then we just ask you to pick an address and, uh, and show up. Um, for those of you who are part of our Facebook group, um, we will have the facilitators, they do a good job at usually posting um, what they're going to bring or what they're going to have for food and what you want to bring. And sometimes they theme it, sometimes it's finger foods. So pay attention to those posts if you see those. If you don't know what to bring and you're not a part of that group, then just get with um, whoever you're going to be with, uh, Tyler and Rebecca um, or Alan Elishaba. And we, we might add more houses if we need to, but uh, Tyler works in the back back there. Rebecca was up here playing the piano. Elishaba is right there. Wave your hand. And then Alan is, is her husband who's working the sound. So get with one of them if you plan on going to that address. Great people, um, much nicer than I am. So, you know, hanging out with them is a little easier than hanging out with me. But you're welcome to come, and we, we, we encourage you to come because home group is, um, is church. This is trying to get you into church. This is, this is good. I like this. But the church is never a meeting. It's a family. And you're supposed to love people and know people. And the first fruit of New Testament revival, if you study the book of Acts, was fellowship. Right? People met together daily. They loved each other so much they wanted to be with each other. I, I'm, I'm for this type of thing. But when you gain a relationship, you actually gain the heart of prayer. It's hard to pray for somebody you don't love. It's hard not to pray for people you love. Are you with me? So we invite you to be a part of that. Um, the, the next thing I wanted to make a quick, is there, anybody have any questions on that before we go any farther? No questions. At least not brave enough to ask publicly. If you have them privately, come with me. Get with me later. Uh, Jared, if you would put um, the announcement up for the worship nights. So guys, we're really excited about this. This has been a dream in my heart for six years. Okay. I've tried multiple times to get it off the ground, 
and it just always seemed to flop and fall. I think we're finally positioned for this to work. So um, what we're trying to do is in the community, we're going to have a corporate worship night. No preaching, just prayer and worship, uh, inviting all churches to be a part of it. We realize it'll probably get slow off the ground with getting other churches involved because Harrison's unique in its church culture. And um, so we're slowly going to try to change that, and hopefully over time people are going to recognize that this is not a competition or a threat to anything that's already going on, but an invitation to unity. Um, and so our team will be performing worship, and we'll hopefully I can get other pastors and leaders to come and pray uh, while we're worshiping, and um, pray for the city, pray for the nation, um, and we'll have, you know, an hour or two set, you know, um, so what we're doing, and it was my fault, I goofed, because this is another change, uh, we have had to switch everything around, so now our, our potluck services are going to be the first Sunday of every month after church, okay, so the first Sunday of every month, we're going to have our food, the last Sunday of every month, starting in March, we're going to have our worship nights, okay, the first one's going to be here at the church to get the bugs worked out because we, we were blessed with a new system that we were could travel with. Oh, my gosh, those things are so expensive. Um, took us a long time to save up for that. We got it. Thank you, Jesus. Um, but after March, we're going to have a list of places, dates, uh, and times that we're going to be gathering. Most of it's going to be either at the college. Uh, a couple of them will be at the Duran Center, and a couple of them will be at the amphitheater for the summer. So we're going to have um, extracurricular places, if you will, or extra geographical places so it's not held in any one church. If you hold something in any one church here, none, no other churches come. That's just the way people's mind works. It's like, oh, that's in that church. I'm not going. But if it's neutral, sometimes people will come. So, um, so that's what we're trying for. Be praying for that and uh, be, be asking the Lord to, to break this um, division type thing in the, in the church. Um, it's not about whether we agree with each other. It's about whether we love one another. Um, it's impossible to agree on everything. It's impossible. Because certain gifts are created in certain ways to be able to do certain things. And they're going to do it differently than you do. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? So as long as they're out there working, I have a problem with armchair Christians. But the ones who are out there working, I don't care. If I disagree with them, well, whatever. At least the gospel's being preached. Amen? So um, we want to we want to really launch that this year, and that's what our heart is. And um, so those are the things that we're going to be uh, implementing along with our other outreaches. If you're interested in anything with that, just get with us. Amen. All right. You guys okay? Uh, bear with me. I uh, I got a new iPad, and it's. It's not that my settings aren't right yet. It keeps going black on me, so I may have to find my place here. All right, so we're in Ephesians. Those of you who are jumping in midstream, um, we've been going through verse by verse. And um, we've been stuck on Ephesians 5 for the ladies. How many of you guys have enjoyed this? Okay, one or two of you. Well, that's good. Um, We've been talking about the power of submission. It's not what you think, because whenever you hear the word submission, if you haven't been here for the last couple services that I've preached on, normally most women cringe, and they shut off. They're done. I'm not listening, because I'm not going to submit to anybody, especially the super spiritual ones that think they only have to listen to the Lord. Yeah, that's, yeah, let's start off on the right foot. Maybe I should tell a joke. You guys okay? I don't Yeah. <laughs> Jokes didn't go over so well with some people, so I don't know. Can't win, you know what I mean? Oh, my goodness. So it's funny. Um, I'm actually more concerned like, about like today being Super Bowl. I never know when the Super Bowl is because I don't pay attention to that stuff. Um, not to say, listen, if you're going to go home, like this, bless you. I just, it's not me. So I, but I wonder, like, why, are we, why do we have everything messed up? Why, why did they put the Super Bowl so close to Valentine's Day? That's just asking for problems. I mean, it should be closer to Father's Day, right? <laughs> Somebody messed up somewhere, that's all I'm saying. And uh, so, yeah, on Super Bowl Sunday, you get me and not Tyler, which means you're probably going to get out a little later. 
We should have we should have fixed that. That was our fault, right? My fault. All right, I want you to turn to Ephesians 5. What are we in verse 22 or 23? There we go. We've we branched off into uh, Jesus' story last week of Gethsemane, and I want to try to cover some things as much as we possibly can on the power of submission and how Christ himself operated in a submissive role throughout most of the entirety of his life. So submission is not just for women. It's a, it's a Christian thing. It's for the bride of Christ, right? And we touch the idea that the women of God are supposed to be the ones that model what it is to be the bride. Does this make sense? Us men should look at women and know how to be the bride of Christ because of how they're modeling the strength of meekness that God has given them. You with me? Okay, we're going to read in 1 Peter that women operate and they should operate in the power of meekness. But do you understand that meekness is not weakness? Okay, I don't know where our American culture understanding, you know, it came from a Latin translation of what meekness is in gentleness, but that's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word actually means something similar to, it's an idea more than a definition. The idea is one who has the authority to keep his sword sheathed in the presence of conflict. So, in other words, you have the power and the authority to lop heads off. You just have the maturity not to. This is meekness. Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth. And then First Peter attributes meekness to women in their relationship. In other words, they have the power. They just are mature enough not to use it in a damaging way. Why? Because Proverbs says this. It says, a wise woman builds her house, but a foolish one tears it down with her hands. The strength and power of the female nature is to, rec- is to model or mirror what the strength and power of the bride is. Right? So when we, if there's no male or female in Christ Jesus, when it says the sons of God are peacemakers and that the meek shall inherit the earth, the whole context is what the, the, what the bride of Christ is supposed to be under the headship of Jesus. And that meek operation that we're supposed to operate in is, it's a very violent but dangerous thing. The idea in the Greek mentality is, is that this person is a warrior and they have the power to destroy you. But they don't. Couple that with Matthew 11 when Jesus defines himself. He says, I am what? Meek. I bear the sword. And I have the power to destroy you. But I choose not to. Amen? So if Christ identifies himself in meekness, and yet he, through the scriptures of the Holy Spirit and through Peter, allows the bride to be identified with that same meekness, he's identifying with her. Are you with me? Okay. When strength is present, it takes meekness or it takes submission to subdue it. Weakness actually can't submit because it's just weak. Therefore, it has no power. You follow me? It takes actual strength to define the context of submission. Are you with me? All right. I got a little more ladies on my side now. We can carry on. Are, are you following what I'm saying? It's very strange when you look at Scripture because Jesus modeled the role of Eve more so than the Adamic as he lived his life. Yet he was the groom. He filled up that which was lacking. And he took upon himself Eve's responsibility and redeemed her and did both parts of the marriage so that she could be restored back to the original identity that God created for her to have. All through Christ's life, you see him in postures of submission. And yet he is the king who doesn't necessarily have to submit Isn't that interesting? He doesn't have to submit to you. He doesn't have to submit to us. And do you know how many times Jesus himself submits to your stubbornness and your rebellion? And your dumb theology? And mine? 
I love it when I come across people who think that their theology is flawless. Like, I'm pretty confident in what I think I know, but I'm also confident when I get there, I'm going to be rebuked. That's just the way it's going to be. He's going to pat me on the head and say, you you tried real hard, boy. (laughs) But that's why I gave you grace. That's how it's probably going to be. You with me? So Jesus models this idea throughout his entire life, and I want to show you in Scripture, and I don't know if I'm going to get through some of this. I hate to drag this on. Ladies, you know, it's not because I'm picking on you, but there's such a powerful role you have, right, that it takes more to unpack because the ladies represent the bride, and that's who we are. That's who we are, male and female. We're the bride of Christ. And so when you study the redemption of Eve, what you're studying is your own redemption. You're studying your own reconciliation. You're studying the pursuit of the groom who served so well that he did both parts of the marriage for us. (sighs) He bore within himself both provider and comforter. It's amazing. It's amazing. You with me? Okay, so I want you to understand that submission is a, is a corporate thing, but God reserves the right and the, the gift and the glory of the reward for the lady. If a woman doesn't submit, she loses a part of her reward. And I will tell you this. In this day and culture, men submit to women more than women submit to men. On, on average. On average. This is where we get our yes, dear jokes. Because that's the way it is. Usually women, I'm not saying you guys are, it's those other ladies somewhere else out there, are manipulative, and they're controlling, and they're stubborn, and they use all kinds of things to manipulate their husbands. Money, sex, the lack thereof, and they don't build their house. And in this day and age, on average, the average male submits more than females do. Ladies, I'm telling you, the power is in submission. The reward is in the submission. It's not that you're weak. It's that you're, giving, you're being given an, an opportunity that Christ willingly chose. It doesn't mean you're wrong. In fact, we talked about that last time or the time before that women actually see very well. They just usually see through fear. It's not, they're not wrong, but the spirit in which by their seeing many times is, is, is wrong. They're accurate, but they're not in the spirit of truth. The same way Eve saw the fruit, she saw it, Adam didn't. Adam's just, you know, he's walking by the refrigerator and can't find the fruit, you know. Just, where's it at, honey? <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> but I think it's funny. I think it's funny how God made us. You know, even like physiologically speaking, men have better eyesight, long range. You're driving down the road, you see that deer? I'm like, what? No deer. What are you talking about? But if you're going to go get the ketchup, you got to like take ten, 10 steps back and... There it is. (laughs) Because women are made to see up close. They see things that are like right there. Men see things that are far off. And it's a spiritual reality. And we need both. The problem comes when one demands that their vision is better than the other. Does this make sense? Or that when we begin to demean one another based upon our inabilities. No, my inability was given so that you could be here. You understand what I just said by that? If, if God hadn't split Adam and Eve apart, we wouldn't need each other. The fact that I have this need means... You get to be here, and vice versa. 
And it means we have to go through life, catch this, not depending on ourselves. That you actually have to go through life depending on somebody other than you. Well, I disagree. You always will. Jesus disagrees with you. But it doesn't stop his love. I don't know a person in here Jesus doesn't disagree with. Starting with me. There's so much in your life, and if I get to know you, I'll see it. You won't see it because you're blind to it. You'll see mine. I'll see yours. And that's how it works, because we need each other's vision. Arrogance comes in whenever we demand that our way of seeing is right. No, you're just seeing through the lens of your gift, which just shows your immaturity. Immature people see through the lens of their gift. And they don't see anybody else's gift other than their own. You understand what I mean by that? Let me, see, let me give you an example, just outside of the marriage issue. You've got a church like this, and somebody has a heart of hospitality, so after church is over, they're the first ones always cleaning. And they're the first ones always straightening up, taking out the trash, and then they look at everybody else going, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> don't you have the heart of a servant? You should serve. You should have hospitality. You should care about somebody. You should care about the mess you just made. They don't say that because they're too nice. But they think that because they're seeing through the lens of their gift. And they don't understand that other people don't have the gift of hospitality. They don't have it. That's your part of the body. And it's your part to show how to serve to the people who don't know how. And if you don't model it, how are they ever going to learn? Instead of being judgmental and critical. We see through the lens of our gift. For the example, the evangelist. You got to go win the lost. Well, some people don't have the heart to win the lost. Some people have heart, heart to pray. And the evangelist can look at the person who's the intercessor and start rebuking them for not being beaten the streets. Are you following what I'm saying? In a husband-wife scenario, it's the same way. You need your husband to be different than you. I remember my mom was raising me and I got a little older and started getting that stupid teenage area, you know, and, and I did something. I guess it must have been, I was too dumb to know what was typical man or not, you know. And she's like, you're just like a typical man. I was like, well, aren't you glad I'm not like a typical woman? <laughs> That'd be bad. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? We had a good laugh, but, or maybe I laughed and she didn't, I don't know. See, but everything you're involved in in Christianity is, has been an act of submission up to this point. Your salvation was an act of submission. You get that? Your forgiveness was an act of submission. Your obedience, an act of submission. Everything that you have in your life right now has been brought upon in your walk with God by your act of submission. Why? Because God knows that you have power. You don't have more power than him, but his power acquiesces to your power, which is called will. And he has the right to overrule it, but he will not. And so the only time something works in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of relationship with Jesus is when you and I acquiesce our power in the form of submission to his power. It takes power to be able to submit. Because you have the right to overrule. But you won't. You with me? Is this making sense? This is a principle that God operates in. Uh, so Jesus took upon himself the posture of submission. We saw that last week in Gethsemane. I'll show you a couple other ways. Um, but I want you to understand this. That when, when, when you come into submission, guys, listen. I mentioned this, I think, the first segment. When you come into a power of submission, everything inside of you, the devil's going to tell you that because you submitted, X, Y, and Z must happen. <laughs> no. In fact, most of the time, the exact opposite's going to happen. I did that, and you treated me like this. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus submitted to the cross, and our sin and our shame and our, our failure did not treat him very well. And Jesus submitted to the cross for people who still go to hell. 
And in his mind, he could look at that and go, it didn't work. No, it worked well. It just didn't work in a submissive way to their will. So there's times whenever submission comes to life that the will of someone else is involved. And when you submit, it's never guaranteed to be powerful enough to override their will. You're not submitting for that something to happen. You're submitting as unto the Lord because he asks you to regardless of what happens. Does this make sense? Because sometimes people think that I submitted so God owes me this. My husband has to do this now. I submitted now he has to love me. No, he doesn't. He should. But God will not force anyone to do anything. The same way, ladies, he will not force you to submit. The same way you cannot use your, sub- your submission to force anybody else in manipulation terms to say that I, I made you breakfast, now you owe me this. Or whatever. That was a dumb excuse, or example. Are you following what I'm saying? We talked about how submission is voluntary. Biblical submission, in order to be biblical, has to be voluntary. Now, for those of you who are new, let me get that out of the way. Never, ever, ever, ladies, should you submit to abuse in any, in any shape, fashion, or form. Never. Never. Not psychological, not sexual, not physical, not emotional, not mental. It's not your job to submit to abuse. It's your job to stand up against it. Okay? Um, so getting that out of the way, I'm, I'm not saying that you should, you know, your husband wants to now have three wives that you have to submit. That's, that's stupid, it's demonic, and it's dumb. Okay? I, I thought I would have got a few more amens, but... So what will be in marriage? You know, I told a story, I think maybe at home group uh, a few weeks ago, that there was a girl I heard on, on the internet who was gaining some traction, some popularity on the deconstruction issue because she grew up in what she called cultish Christianity that, that stated that you, you kept yourself for marriage and that if you did that, your marriage would be blessed. Well, I'm sorry that someone had a bad ability to teach the gospel to you and gave you that false idea. But she's now using that false idea she was trained in against God because she saved herself toward marriage, and then she got married, and then her husband cheated on her. And so then she says, well, God, you're not real, and your your promises don't work, and I obeyed you, and I submitted, and I did this, and I did that, and you didn't do this for me. Therefore, ergo, you do not exist. The problem is, is that this, is that nowhere in the scriptures does Jesus promise that if you do this, this will happen. In fact, he promises trial, tribulation, difficulty, hardship, you know, and troubles. That's what he promises you. But he promises you this, I'll be with you. See, if we're submitting because we're going to armbar God, we're going to be disappointed whenever it touches the will of another person. Ladies, you keep yourself pure for marriage for yourself and for God. Your husband just reached the benefits of it. You do it because God asks you to, because sin will wreck your life. Because outside of marriage, that type of thing will destroy you. And you'll join yourself to a lot of different people, and you become one flesh with them, and then you wonder why you're so schizo in your emotions. Because your heart has been divided over and over and over again. You keep yourself for yourself, and you keep yourself for God. Amen? Whether your husband does right with it or not, that can't be controlled. Can't be controlled. Anytime you involve a will other than your own in a scenario, you will never control it. And if you try, that's witchcraft. Control is witchcraft. Period. Let's look at, we're not going to go there, but let's look ethereally at Daniel. The Old Testament Daniel. Some of you know his story. Young boy, somewhere between the ages of 8 and 12. His entire country gets sacked. They kill his family. They take his homeland. They burn his city. He gets taken captive by a foreign king. Given a demonic name. The name of a demonic God. And he answers to it. They cut his manhood out and make him a eunuch. And he's forced to use his intellect to serve a demonic empire. 
And Daniel submitted. Did it work the way he wanted to? No, in fact, God promised Daniel that they would return back to Israel, but it wouldn't happen in his day. He never got to see. He never got to see the promise. But what Daniel did, his submission, what Daniel did is laid the foundation and the framework of the character of a man or woman of God that influenced people like Esther, that influenced people like Nehemiah and Darius, that brought about the ability for the kingdom of God to be built again. So when you, when you submit, it never works the way you want to. It never works the way you want it to. Daniel figured this out. When you submit to the plan of God for your life, it's not going to go the way you want. Joseph figured this out. All the prophetic dreams in the world didn't stop the character formation that God required for the ultimate prophetic fulfillment of destiny. Didn't happen the way Joseph thought. You understand what I'm saying? But Joseph submitted. He submitted to the prison. He submitted to his older brothers in that sense. You know, a lot of times, you know, when we come to this point of, of submission in our lives or, and trying to embrace those types of things, it looks like a lack of patriotism. It looks like an identity issue that we have, like, you know, we're weak. No, we're seeing a power that's able to move in something that's greater than what we can control. Are you with me? Submission is not possible until you see the hand of God steering the environment you're having to submit to. Because if you look at your husband or your nation or your pastor, you're going to just find something that's wrong. And you're not going to be able to trust because we talked about knowledge being the thing that keeps all people, but especially women, from submission. The knowledge of sin keeps us in a justification of lack of submission. You know how many people have come to me over the years from other churches, and, and all they have to say is what's negative about the other church? Well, this pastor, he doesn't know about intimacy or this or that or blah, blah, blah. And, and, and I have had people come in here too, and they come in with what I call the cockeyed look. All they're doing is measuring you to figure out what's wrong in you so they don't have to come to church. The problem I have with that is they're using the power of knowledge. And knowledge will always tell you what's wrong, but never give you the power to love those who are wrong. And if you can't love, I don't care what your theology is. See, love is patient. It endures long. And I've had people that have told me, oh, I love you, pastor, and they're only here for a short period of time, and then they're stabbing me and my family and my church in the back, and they're walking out the door. No, what they mean is for a moment they have a temporal affinity with me that happens to align emotionally. But as soon as things get difficult and knowledge of whatever faults that I might have enter in, their knowledge, their love of knowledge is more than their love of God. You guys ever, have ever been in a scenario where you found out about a certain sin that was going on for a long time and it just devastated you? Let me ask you a question. Why didn't it devastate you before you knew about it? Because it was still going on. See, most people are more convinced with the power of knowledge than they are the power of love. See, knowledge creates fear, which causes an excuse for a lack of submission. Because basically what we're saying is, I will only submit to you if you're perfect. Yet, ironically, we're asking our children, wives, to submit to us. Husband, I'm not going to submit to you unless you're perfect in every way, but I'm going to demand submission of my kids. That's called being a hypocrite. See, you're not going to go anywhere in life without submission. I don't care if you own your own business. You've got to submit to taxes and the government and the police officers and the code enforcements and all these different things. Everywhere in your life, you will submit. You will. It's a, it's a product of nature. You with me? Forced submission is not obedience. It's just not. 
We could go through the scriptures over and over and over. How many times these things don't work in our favor, right? David had to submit to Saul. Like, I'm not, I'm not for abusive pastors. I'm not for that. But I'm saying this is that I've had people come, my pastor this, my pastor that. I'm like, well, is he, is he trying to murder you? Well, no. I don't see a problem. The problem I see is with how you feel about it. But he, what about you? Like, you can't fix him. Why does this bother you so much? Because what I see is you're a manipulable. That's what I see. I see that the moment something doesn't go your way, you lose your, your junk. And my Bible tells me that part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. I don't see that going on right now. See, David had to submit to Saul. Was Saul right? No. The hardest times of submission are when you disagree. In fact, we talked about that, right? What is it? It's not submission until you what? Because <laughs> otherwise it's already your idea anyway. Oh, I submit to my pastor, yeah, on all the stuff you already want to do. As soon as he starts putting the pump in the brakes, you're just like, ah! Because we can't fathom somebody seeing something different than we can because we're, we're the almighty seeing eye, right? We will never say that, but that's how we act, that's how we think, and that's how we operate. The older I get and the more mature I get, the more I realize I need people with different gifts surrounding me to see things from different angles because I don't see them accurately through my gift. Lack of submissions all through the Bible. I don't have time to go into it. Samson didn't submit to his parents. What happened? Bad deal. Saul didn't submit to the word of the Lord over his life. What happened? Genesis 16, 9. This is the story of, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just a couple of verses. This is a story where Abraham and Sarah decide to do things God's God's plan their way and birth Ishmael and they are oppressed and so they're so oppressed by Sarah Sarah is like like she's like I mean first Peter talks about women you're the you're the you're the children of Sarah if you're not living in fear this is we'll get there hopefully the fear removes you from your posture of identity. I'm afraid my husband's this. I'm afraid my husband's that. You need to go read Job and, and, and that, that part somewhere around maybe five, six, or seven, where it talks about that which fear, Job feared the most came upon him. Fear is an invitation if you give into it. But here, so, so Hagar leaves to escape the oppression of Sarah because she's treating her so terribly. And Sarah's the master. And she leaves. She can't take it anymore. Like Sarah's making her life miserable. Everybody thinks Sarah's this big godly woman. Man, she was an oppressor. She was a strong woman. And she made Hagar's life miserable. And so she leaves. And the angel of the Lord, verse 9 in Genesis 16, says to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. I mean, we want that anointing. We can pray for you right here. Just start a line. We'll make it. No? And he said, verse 10, I will multiply your seed exceedingly that it shall not be numbered in multitude. In other words, after the submission comes the blessing. Are you, are you following what I'm saying? All right. Let's read this in First Peter. Let's read it quickly in first Peter 3 1 through 6 it says uh, likewise wives be in subjection to your own husbands that if any obey not the word of God they also may without the word be won by the conversation of their wives what that's saying is is that submit yourself to your husbands if you have a husband that doesn't believe in God or follow God that they might be actually one to God by your conversation that word there literally means lifestyle and character 
that by how you live your life, your act of submission can bring that man to Jesus. Not by your words, but by your lifestyle. Let me tell you something. Men are more moved by actions than they are words. Actions speak way louder to men. Words, they're okay. But most words by women when they're trying to get their husband to change are derogatory, negative, and accusatory. Guys, how well does that work? doesn't work. It makes you just want to fight. That's all it does. And the more alpha he is, the more fight you're going to get. <laughs> it's the way it works. The conversation, the lifestyle. I think I've told this story before. It's a true story. There was a man who was a complete debauchery, waste of human life in that sense. Drunkard, spent everything that he had and everything he made on alcohol, stayed in the bars until 2, 3, 4 in the morning. His wife was a Christian believer, loved the Lord. And he treated her like garbage. But every day when he would come home at night from 2, 3, 4, 5 o'clock in the morning from the bar, she'd get up out of bed, she'd make him breakfast, take his shoes off, and serve him. And this went on for years. Well, one day he was at the bar drinking. He was like, you guys wouldn't believe the wife I have because everybody was complaining about their wife. And he said, I could take you home right now. And she'd get up out of bed. It was like 2.30 in the morning. And she'd make us all breakfast and serve us all. And everybody was like, there's no way. He said, come on. So they left the bar and they went home. Sure enough, she got up out of bed. She made breakfast for them all. She served them. And the guys are sitting there, like their jaws on the table, going, what in the world is this? And one of them piped up and said, why do you treat this man so great, so awesome, when he treats you so terribly? And she said, my husband is going to hell. And this is the only time in life that he has to actually enjoy anything. And it's my duty to give him as much of heaven as I can before he burns for eternity. Two weeks later, that man got saved because the years of service that came behind the word made it powerful. If she would have just said that without the heart of a servant, it would have just created a conflict. He says that this conversation or lifestyle might win over your husband. While the men behold or listen to your chaste lifestyle, your conversation, coupled with fear, let your adorning not be on the outward appearance with plating of the hair and weaving of gold and putting on of the apparel, but let it be of the hidden man of the heart in which that is not corruptible, an ornament of meek and a quiet spirit. It's that word meekness there. It's the same word Jesus uses when he describes himself, and it's the same word he uses whenever he's talking about that the meek will inherit the earth. It's that Greek word of power. Somebody who has the ability to hold the, sh the sword sheathed. Which in the, com in the sight of God is a great price. For after this manner, the, old, the women of old also trusted in God, adorned themselves, in subjection to their own husbands. You see that? Who'd they trust? God. They trusted God in the submission to their husbands. You don't trust your husband, you trust God. You trust God. Who can move your husband? God can move your husband more than you can. If you get out of the way, then God has a clear shot at them. But if you're in the way, he's got to deal with you first. Which is why so many marriages don't get fixed because the wife's in the way. And so if the wife's going to be in the way, God's going to deal with them. And then she's going to be like, why aren't you ever getting my husband? When you get out of the way, God will deal with your husband. Ladies, you know, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if your husband's not following the Lord, 
and there's, there's beginning to be a financial duress in his life, you need to start praising God because that's how God works with men. He starts touching their finances to get their attention. Your job is not to fix the finances. It's to let the pressure break him so that it takes him to the Lord. Usually when God wants to get a woman's attention, he deals with her, her children. He touches the kids somehow or lets something come out of the children. God has his ways of breaking people. And all of us must come into submission, right? For after this manner, the women of old trusted God, ordained themselves being in subjection against their, uh, into their husbands. Even Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you dwell and you're not afraid of anything. In other words, fear removes you from the ability to be that daughter of Sarah. Does this make sense? It doesn't mean that you're not that. It means that you're not operating in it. Are you following me? As one guy said, you know, he, he said, I read that verse in First Peter, came home, told my wife she needs to start addressing me as Lord. My wife, he said, my wife said to me, when you start doing the things Abraham did, I will. Submission doesn't take understanding. It takes trust. How many of you guys like trust? Some are, some are shaking their head yes. Others are like, oh, no. I'm with the ones who say no. I don't like trust. Trust puts me out of control. But do you realize everything beautiful from God comes when you're not in control? <laughs> Many times we want to understand before we obey. Yet we'll require our children just to say yes and go do it. But when it comes to an authority in the church, you know how many times I have as, a, as an authority, which I don't push myself on anybody in here. If you walk with me long enough, I'm not going to make you do anything. It's not my way. It's not who I am. I'm probably the least micromanaging person you're ever going to meet. In fact, I get in trouble sometimes because I'm not getting involved in certain things that are happening. And people are like, you need to deal with this. I'm like, no. And they think I don't care about it or whatever. And it's like, no, I'm just old enough and smart enough to realize the stupidity that they're involved in is going to bite them in the butt and everybody's going to see things for where they are if I just let it go for a minute. But I, I, get, I get people get upset at me sometimes as a pastor because they want to know why. But in every other area of life, we don't demand that. You go work a job and you ask your boss why, he's going to be like, you're getting paid from the neck down, son. Go do what I told you to do. Right? Sometimes you have to just trust. And that can't happen without what? Relationship. This is why when you go to a church, you need to find a church somewhere that you can call your base, your home. Because it's those people that you're connected to that are going to keep you grounded and have the relationship with you that you can trust the things that they say in your life. But if you don't spend enough time with them to trust them, whenever they do finally give you the advice that you say you want and you don't like it, you're not going to take it. Because there's no trust behind the wisdom. I'm okay with, with people visiting churches and all that type of stuff, but you need accountability. You need a, a pastor or a leader in your life. You need somebody. I don't care. I don't, it doesn't have to be me. It can be anybody. But you've got to find somebody that you can look to and say, when times get hard and I call you, I need, I need you to be straight with me. And you need to be able to put the understanding aside and just say, hey, look, just go do this, and you'll be okay. Paul says this. Paul says, emulate what I did and when I was there. Do what I did, and you'll be following Christ. We would see that as arrogance. Paul saw it as confidence in the Lord. Are you understand what I'm saying? Is this okay so far? Okay. Oh, sorry, guys. Let me try to go through this quickly. I want to show you how Christ spent a specific amount of time trying to redeem the woman. Specifically. Many, many key stories in the Bible revolve around Christ's interaction with women. 
And the Bible is very clear that what Jesus did in the earth was so amazing and so powerful that, that the books, he couldn't write enough books to tell the story of what he did. So what he did put in there was important, and his interactions with women were, were put there for a reason. Because it wasn't just the redemption of Eve, it was the redemption of the bride. So it's both male and female included. But just real quick, I want to look at the, the, the redemption that he showed prophetically at the marriage at Cana. See, most people use this passage as an excuse to drink alcohol, which is ignorant and stupid, but it's a different sermon. But there's a prophetic order here that what Jesus was laying out in Cana, and it also shows who he was as a submissive role. It says, on the third day in verse two, chapter, uh, or verse 1, chapter 2 of John, there was a wedding on the Cana of Galilee, and Yeshua's mother was there. And Yeshua and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, Yeshua's mother came to him and said, they don't have any wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me and you? My hour has not yet come. Think about this. If you go to the chronological history of, of the Bible and the order in which it happened chronologically, not in the order in which it's written in our Gospels, but the order in which it happens chronologically speaking, the first thing that Jesus reserved for himself in the sense of the time and the hour that was supposed to happen wasn't this. It was the cleansing of the temple. His first action as Messiah seen was to cleanse the temple. Why? Because that's what has to happen for him to move in. You with me? So in God's mind, Christ's mind, his first prophetic act, when you can look at everything Jesus did as a prophetic symbol of what his process of, of redemption was to be. It's, a, it's an amazing study if you look at it like that in scripture. Of how everything he did was a prophetic symbol of restoration and growth over through what he was attempting to do. That his first act was to cleanse the temple where he owned the rights to that seat. This was his desire. His mother comes and says, we have a problem here. And he's like, this is not my time. You're out of the order of God. He was right. She was wrong. She was just operating in her feministic fear. Lack. Not having enough. What did he do? He submitted. Wow. He submitted. And she said, do whatever he tells you to do. And he did. The prophetic symbolism here in John is that Jesus used this submission to bring forth a new prophetic reality that his first act as Messiah wasn't cleansing the temple. It was putting his life into the hearts of people. Because the six stone, carry, the six stone pots that they had there for purification, those were used to purify oneself before service. But they were stone indicating prophetically the order of men's hearts, the hardness of men's hearts. And they were put in with water, which didn't purify men. We know this, right? And he says, he, cha he changes the order of purification from water to blood. And he does it at a wedding. Why? Because this was his first prophetic sign that I'm here to redeem Eve, my bride. I'm going to change this from the old order of fear of six being the number of man this stone heart, and I'm going to put my life inside of it. So the promise prophetically to put his life inside of us came before the action of cleansing the temple so the life could come. So Jesus' actions here, trying to redeem Eve, the woman, the, the, the seed of, of Eve, is seen right off the bat that as God, he submitted to a woman who was even still in fear. Because he believed that his love was greater than her fear. Are you with me? That's okay. That's, a, that's an okay point. The same thing in, in, in Matthew 15. There's a Canaanite woman who has a daughter who needs to be healed. It's funny how she's not even a part of the Jewish order. 
And you know the story, he calls her a dog. And her faith says basically this, yes, but I'm your dog. And he's like, yeah, I like that. You can have what comes from the table and no longer the crumbs. He redeemed this woman who was outside of the camp. Very much indicative of Eve and Adam being kicked outside of the garden. There's a restoration he points to there. You with me? Luke 13, the woman with the issue of blood. Right? That's highly prophetic. For the condition of man was brought through the womb of Eve. The blood was tainted. There was weakness. There was no life. There was an entire expenditure on everything other than God. And the moment she reaches out to him, the groom, this woman, touching the hem of his garment, the tzitzit, if you will, acknowledging his Messiahship, she's instantly healed. Think about that. Even his disciples said in that moment, there are a million people touching you right now. Only one, only one received the power. God was, in a sense, redeeming that part of Eve, that recreative structure of Eve, because the issue of blood she had was a reproductive issue. And he healed her. No longer from her womb would come death, but it would come life. Are you following me? He also calls her a daughter of Abraham and restores her identity. Doesn't say daughter of Sarah, he says you're a daughter of Abraham. You're a daughter of faith. John chapter 4, we don't have time to go through it. It's an amazing study. This woman, more than in the rest, which is actually more important than the rest because this is actually his first encounter, one of his first encounters with people in the beginning of his ministry. This didn't happen later on, this was at the very beginning of his ministry. The only person he went to before this that we see in Scripture, which actually came to him, was Nicodemus. So Jesus first came to try to redeem Adam in the religious order, but it didn't stick. His next encounter, scripturally speaking, chronologically speaking, was with this woman, who is a Samaritan, which indicates a half-breed. She wasn't even full Jew. And not only is she a half-breed, She's an adulterer, and she's messed up, and she's went after other lovers. Isn't this the picture of Eve? A half-breed, no longer one with God, but still retaining some parts of similarities, and yet trying to find love in all the wrong places. And Jesus says he had to go through Samaria. See, God orchestrates his destiny to collide with yours. He orchestrates his journey to intersect with yours. And it says that when he was wearied with his journey, he sat down at Jacob's well. And this woman comes. Imagine this. Full of immorality, adultery, and sin, mixed with just enough religion to attempt to be right with God, knowing she wasn't. He says, you have five husbands. Why five? Because even when she was in full sin, screwing up her entire life, she had no clue that the number of husbands she landed on is the biblical significance of the number of grace that God was offering. The grace to cover her past and her reality. All the sin of Eve was about to be accounted for in her true husband, Jesus. And it's interesting to me that this is the first evangelist in the Bible. Now, you might have some religious devils argue the semantics because she didn't bear the name, but she was an evangelist. It's funny that Jesus chose a woman on the front end of his ministry to preach his gospel, and in John 20, on the back end of his ministry, 
Mary to preach his gospel. See, because this whole thing started with a woman, he's going to end it the same way. Because his redemption of Eve is, is important to him. There's a reason why he only showed himself to Mary. Because what he was saying is, is I'm still here for you and I'm going to clean up all your mistakes. I'm the husband you always needed and wanted. And as the bride of Christ, that's what we need. It's not just for the feminine, it's also for the masculine. Because as the bride of Christ, Jesus says, I'm going to finish this with you. I'm going to finish this with you, church. I started it for you, and I'm going to let you finish it. And so what we see in the entanglement of the cohabitation of marriage is this structure and order where basically both of us are exposed enough so that we become like him, so that we can finish what he started. The Bible says that there will be a great coming to the Lord in the end, but there will also be a place where the spirit of John the Baptist will come. And that, that spirit is the spirit that prepares the way of the Lord. And who is that other than the bride of Christ? So you can study this Christ interaction with women and see that he had a very, very close heart for Eve. And husbands, as we get into your part, you're going to see that if you don't have that same heart for her, then you're never going to be able to love her. Your heart for your wife has to be the same as Christ's heart for the church. I think most marriages need to stop trying to figure out who's right and start trying to build what relationship you have. And if there's anything that gets in the way of the marriage at all, it should be the first thing to suffer, not your spouse. Let's go to verse 23. We finally got off 22. Give, me, give yourselves a hand. No. <laughs> For the husband is the head of the wife. He's also Christ is head of the church. And he's the savior of the body. Next verse. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject to their husbands in everything. Why? Because this is your ability and power to move things the way Christ moved them. And that he has a special place in his heart for women. Because, like I said in the very first sermon of this, it was never supposed to be men above women. In the beginning, we were equal. It was sin. It was sin. It was the curse that brought the order. And if, it's, if it was the curse that brought the order, then love can reverse the curse. You understand? I didn't have time to go into it all, but the amazing tenderness of Jesus towards women was, is so apparent in Scripture. And men, we should learn from that. But we also should understand that Submission, guys, is the vehicle that God uses to bring about change. In any marriage I've ever counseled where there's problems, it's because one or both parties will not submit. And it's amazing that when one, of, one or both start submitting and stop caring about who's right and wrong and start focusing on love, life begins to grow. Because knowledge can only produce the view of more sin. Knowledge will open your eyes, but it will close your heart. Love will open your heart, 
and sometimes make you close your eyes. Love covers a multitude of sin. Are you with me? All right. Guys, you're next. (laughs) I thought I'd get more amens from the women. You can stand. I pray this series has been a blessing to you. I pray you've learned something. If you disagree, that's fine. I'm not here to argue with you. I would just ask you that if you disagree, look at the fruit in your marriage. It's amazing that people disagree, but they want to keep eating bad fruit. It's amazing to me. uh, People want to come up to me and argue theological issues, and their marriages are a wreck. Their children are a wreck. Their finances are a wreck. Their relationships are a wreck. And yet somehow they're right. See, fruit is more important than anything else. And people need to eat. So be a life that they can eat from. And I always tell people, find the marriage that you want yours to be like and hang around those people. (laughs) Find the ministry, find the culture that someone's created that you admire and figure out how they did it, regardless of whether you agree with it or not. Find the parents that have children that you want yours to be like and ask them, How'd you do it? Fruit. Amen. Lord, help us. For this great power of meekness and submission is something your son bore so beautifully. And we need it. Holy Spirit, give us that great power of self-control to resist the temptation of being right. And embrace the opportunity of laying down our lives. We know we're not going to get this in a day, in a week, in a month. So we pray for an extra measure of mercy for anyone who attempts these things. I pray for blessings over the households, Father. And I thank you that the greatest revival we'll ever see is restored families. Restored marriages. Because anybody can come to a service where the outpouring is great, but if it doesn't manifest into the fruit of unity that your heart bleeds for, then it's just an invitation. It's not a manifestation. So let it bleed into reality in this house. Let marriages be healed and families be healed and children be healed. Wives be healed. Husbands learn how to love. And give us grace to walk with each other as we seek this thing out. Because none of us are going to do it right. So Father, we thank you for your your heart for a restored family. And we ask that it would manifest itself here like a lighthouse to the nations. That people would come to be restored by those who are being restored. We ask these things for your honor and your privilege and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You're welcome to come back tonight for discipleship, but I know the football game is on and I can't compete with that, but I will be here.